1: The New Statesman. Hello, I'm Freddie. And I'm Anoush. And this is The New Statesman's Politics Podcast. On today's episode, Anoush and I have swapped seats and I'm going to be asking her about a recent reporting trip to Port Talbot and how these steelwork closures will affect Wales and Labour's green agenda. Hello, I'm Freddie Hayward, political correspondent, and joining me in the studio just back from Wales is Anousha Kellyan, Britain editor. Hi, Freddie. Hello, how are we doing? So how was your trip, Anoush?
0: Yeah, it was interesting. So for our listeners who haven't been following this story, the two blast furnaces at Port Talbot Steelworks um, are going to be closed by the owner, Tata Steel, which is an Indian firm, um, and to be replaced with an electric arc furnace, which is the way that you... um, make steel in a greener way. Right. Um, but in the process of making this change, uh, 2,800 jobs are forecast to be lost. And so I went to go and speak to the steel workers there who um, are about to lose their jobs and um, find out what they think of the way that they've been treated, but also you know, the wider context of this green transition.
1: Mm. I mean, because it's, it's dominating the news in many ways, isn't it? It's in Stephen Kinnock's uh, constituency, who's a Labour shadow minister. Uh, Mark Drakeford, the first minister of Wales, has complained about the fact that Rishi Sunak won't speak to him about it. So we've seen it over, over many years, that Port Talbot's sort of been this totemic... Um, Uh, project uh, that's required government funding, but also is trying to modernise and adopt new green practices. So where does this fit in in the broader story of Port Talbot and also that industrial debate within the UK?
0: Yeah, so you're right. So closure has sort of hung over, or the the prospect of closure or job losses has hung over Port Talbot for a long time. Um, I went to go and cover it in 2016 as well. I went round with Carwin Jones, who was then the First Minister of Wales, um, when Tata Steel was threatening to pull out of British steel completely because of, you know, cheap Chinese imports and it just wasn't, you know, the the return on Im- Im- the investment for it. It didn't feel that it was viable. And also, you know, this is in the context of South Wales, which has been de yeah. since Thatcher's day. People still mention the loss of the coal mines there. Um, and it's, you know, a huge part of identity in South Wales, both the industrial heritage, but also what's been done to co- the communities there. I mean, when I was speaking to someone who runs a sort of breakfast van which serves the steel workers. And she's been there for thirty-five years. She was saying that it would be apocalyptic if mm. the if last furnaces at the steelworks closed for the town, for her business, um, and for the wider South Wales economy as well. Because a lot of people, even if they don't work in the steelworks themselves, have um, you know businesses related to it. Either they're contractors that serve parts of the steelworks, or you know they run the corner shop. Which uh, a steel worker drops into when he's driving to work every day. You know, someone that I spoke to said I pick up my paper and my milk from from a corner shop on the way, and I won't be doing that anymore if I'm not driving to work anymore. Mm. Um, and so there's there's a big knock-on effect. Um, Unite reps uh, suggested to me that it could, you know, it, it could add up to the ten thousands of jobs that, that are affected. Um, so it, it's it's it has it has huge ramifications for people's lives. Um, and it really does call into question how the government and how Labour intend to transition over to a greener economy, because it looks like inevitably there will be some losers from that. And if communities like Port Talbot start being devastated by these decisions, then is there going to be a public
1: backlash to it? And what's the government said? Because they've pointed to the fact that they've invested lots of money in Port Talbot before. But what are they saying now?
0: Yeah, so now they've given 500 million um, to Tata. Um for this transition. And Labour essentially are framing this as, you've given this money to this company to make 3,000 jobs redundant in right. Britain, with no proper strings attached. Um, and the consensus seems to be, from people who know about this, is that they had the figure first and built their offer around that figure. So it's basically like, you know, we can we can offer this much and no more. Mm. Whereas Labour, um, three billion into green steel investment as part of their green prosperity plan. And so they've got sort of bigger money to throw at Port Talbot or at, or at Tata. But again, you know, is that enough? You know, I was speaking to steel workers who were saying they didn't think Labour was offering enough. And they can't promise to keep the bl- to reopen these blast furnaces if they close before they get into government, because apparently it's very difficult to to reopen the furnaces. So I was speaking to Stephen Kiddock, yeah. who, you know, he doesn't work on energy policy, but he's on Labour's front bench and he represents this constituency. And, you know, he was saying what we're saying to Tata is don't make any decisions now, wait for us to get into government, rather than an outright promise that we would reopen them even if they close.
1: After the break, we'll discuss whether Labour can keep people on board with their green energy plan. If you're subscribed to the New Statesman, you can get all of our episodes ad free on the New Statesman app. You can get it both on iOS and Android. Just search for New Statesman on the App Store or Google Play Store. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. Labour's broader policy for the country in general, but also its economic strategy is founded on this 28 billion well, the thing, green prosperity yeah. plan, which we know has come under so much scrutiny and they've rolled back quite a few times and diluted it over the past few months. They basically say that we're going to keep the overarching game, which is to decarbonise the uh, energy system by 2030, uh, even if that means we don't spend 28 billion. But when it comes down to the nitty gritty of uh, on the ground policy decisions, that money, once you add it all up, makes a massive difference, doesn't it? Whether or not exactly. uh, they achieve the the overarching stated goal of twenty of twenty thirty, uh, there's the question alongside that of whether the places like Port Talbot are going to get the money.
0: Yeah, well, I, I've spoken to people close to um, that part of the policy side of things in Labour, who have basically said, you know, this is a good story for us to tell because we can sell that investment that, you know, they've been slightly um, swaying on. I mean, the 28 billion figure, I still... They really don't want to say that out loud in public. And I think I think no, they're under instruction not to, not to use the number. Um, but in this case, they can say, well, Labour has this plan. We can guarantee that. You know, Tata, don't do anything now. Wait till we get into government. And here's, here's our plan, you know, a proper plan for investment rather than the government throwing like a small chunk of taxpayers' money at you to do whatever you want with. Um but, but I think, you know, that's a positive view of it. But on the other side, I know this is happening under the government's watch, but is it more grist to the argument that net zero is leaving sort of ordinary people behind and having mm-hmm. a having a, a, real financial impact on, on people's lives, which, you know, the Conservatives have been trying to use, especially since that ULES by-election, even though, you know, that policy... Uh, isn't necessarily related to, to net zero in, in quite planet, a direct way. yeah. yeah. Um, there, there's already been op-eds in, in right-wing papers saying this shows the sort of the betrayal of people yeah. under the name of net zero. So I do think that is a vulnerability for Labour as well.
1: Well, this is one of the problems, isn't it? How you keep people on board during the transition. Um, I think people are speculating at the moment that the large insulation programme that Labour have said will be at the top of their priorities will inevitably entail people's houses being ripped apart yeah. It'd be very uh, intrusive. There's also debate over, you know, how you have um, domestic heating changes. Um, and we've sort of yet to get to those things and we're yet to see the reaction. Now, some people might point to something like ULES, which, uh, as we say, is not really a climate change policy, it's more of a health policy, uh, but it was sort of framed in a way of intruding on people's personal lives mm-hmm. for some environmental um, outcome. And I think it's it's quite interesting, isn't it, that we had so much debate for many months in the lead up to its introduction. And then once it was introduced, there's not been that much backlash, I think, because once people realised that it only affected quite a small number of people. Can't really say the same about home installation, which they hope affects everyone. So I think you're right, Anish, the the debate is going to shift um, in the next few years if Labour are going to be successful in implementing these plans.
0: Yeah. And it's worth saying, actually, that the workers that I spoke to, they weren't cynical or sceptical about the green transition. They want to have cleaner energy. They work in this plant. I went round the plant. You can smell it. It gets into your nose, into the back of your throat. You Mm. know, the coke burning, which they need to use to create the steel. It's really unhealthy a black cloud sort of hangs over these works and then, you know, wh- when you drive um, further out away from them, then suddenly like a little bit of blue sky was shining through. So, you know, they're, they're, it's dirty work and they like the idea of, a, of, a, of cleaner energy and a green transition mm-hmm. and they, they've got those specialist skills that they can use in different different uh, sort of manufacturing um, uh, purposes. So they're not they're not, you know, they're not against it. But I think what they were saying is what they want to see, they they feel completely betrayed by the company, first of all, by the government as well, which they feel is sort of um chucking their jobs under the bus. And they do have optimism for a labor government to do it differently. Mm-hmm. But, Ultimately, it takes fewer workers to man an electric arc furnace than it does the two blast furnaces. So there are going to be jobs that need to be redistributed elsewhere. Um, And it's up to Labour to make the argument that they would be able to do that in a a more just way than is happening at the moment.
1: Yeah, I mean... It sort of sums up the idea that, you know, rarely happens, I think, but that politics and policy, they come, they collide and yeah. they, they come together. Labour has to keep people on board with this. And I think it's interesting that they've, as we just said, they sort of dropped the 28 billion figure, which uh, doesn't necessarily change the policy. It's just a, a, a political... Um, manoeuvre, but they've also adopted in the, one of their campaigning documents recently, uh, the new uh, sort of slogan, switch on Great British Energy. Yeah. And we had some polling last year, which basically said that the Green Prosperity Plan, as an idea about you know investing in the green economy, was genuinely quite popular, but it also had a large minority who were opposed to it. Whereas a publicly owned renewable energy company like uh, Great British Energy was extremely popular. It's one of the most popular policies. So they've sort of switched uh, towards uh, prioritising that in terms of their messaging. Now, whether that means necessarily that the policy is going to change, I think is a different question. But leading up to the election, at least, we're going to see them not talk about the 28 billion and talk about Great British Energy.
0: Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. I mean, I've sat in focus groups when that Great British Energy policy has been presented to people and it it always goes down really well. So I think it's right for them to sort of frame their energy reforms around that policy because it is popular. And again, I think, I think one of the things that came up while I was reporting, which is a question for Labour as much as it is for, for the Conservatives and also for unions too, mm. is what kind of economy does Britain want to be? You know, the government seems to be quite happy for Britain no longer to be a country, you know, the only one in our league of, 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 of countries not to be making our own steel anymore because these plans would mean that we wouldn't make virgin steel. I mean, in the context of the sort of conflicts that we see around the world and the kind of some of the bellicose rhetoric that we see from our ministers, it does seem quite odd that they're happy to to sacrifice that. Um, but also, you know, is there is there a, a, an undue nostalgia for manufacturing in yeah. British politics? And that's something I thought Stephen Kinnock, when I spoke to him, was really interesting on this because he said he said it so many times. I think he said it about four times okay. when I was speaking to him. He doesn't want to be sentimental or nostalgic about um, these kind of industries. He wants them to be seen for what they are or what he was arguing they are, which is, you know, extremely cutting-edge, high-tech, high-skilled things that can be taken into the future um, rather than, you know, harking back to a past that Mm -hmm. really doesn't exist in Britain anymore. I mean, it was interesting because the workers were showing me around all the land that will eventually be sold off for the free port that's planned for Port Talbot, which is the post-Brexit policy for these sort of deregulated areas of industry. And they were saying probably some of our apprentices who we've been training up since they were 16 are going to end up working in Amazon warehouses here. So, you know, that is that is the direction that the government has chosen for the economy. So so I think, you know, you've got to be quite wary um of politicians being nostalgic for for sort of manufacturing Britain when when that is the reality.
1: Yeah. We saw the Resolution Foundation pick up on this recently in their sort of big yeah. totemic report. They essentially made the argument that if uh, Labour or the government in general wants the country to grow, they need to recognise the fact that the UK is, in general, a service-based economy. Yeah. We can't really have this nostalgia, as you say, or this sort of you know, harking back to a time or trying to rebuild a time where manufacturing was key, and that was our key export. No, our key export at the moment is services. Um, so they've for instance, took the example of Manchester and they said, OK, well, if we want Manchester to grow as a as a city economy, well, first of all, we need to massively increase uh, residences in the town centre and we also need to bring in those huge service providers that are mostly based in London um, to Manchester because that's the only way that we can increase productivity. So th- I, I agree, there's sort of that recognition, it sounds like, from uh, Stephen Kinnock and others that you can't be nostalgic about it, but it sounds as well that Port Talbot isn't necessarily representative of the the UK economy in general, when I, th- I can't remember the figure, whether something like, you know, 80% is is uh, service-based. Thanks so much for listening. If you'd like to submit a question for us to discuss on a future podcast, you can do so at newstatesman.com forward slash us. If you're listening on Spotify, just scroll down on the episode page and type your reply. Or if you're watching on YouTube, you can leave a question in the comments. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Freddie Hayward, and my colleague Anusha Kellyan. We'll be back tomorrow to answer your questions in our next episode, You Ask Us. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time.